Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair, yep. his ice-cold demeanor, and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. My name is Sergeant Andrew Scott. Come on, guys, don't do this. If I don't get breakfast, I get real grumpy. I don't think you like me grumpy. And you go in pieces, asshole. Let's kick some ass. Hello, and welcome back to I Must Break, this podcast. The fan podcast taking an in-depth look at the cinematic career of Dolph Lundgren. Today we're taking a look at the 2011 fantasy adventure In the Name of the King 2, Two Worlds. In this sequel to the 2007 fantasy epic, Dolph Lundgren teams up with notorious director Uva Boll and stars as Granger, an ex-Special Forces soldier who is magically whisked away to a medieval kingdom where he must defeat an evil king and fulfill an ancient prophecy. The king requests your presence. Why have I been brought here? Our kingdom, our very existence is threatened by the Dark One. There is to be a fountain of blood in your days ahead. It is your destiny. Chosen one. Chosen to do what? You shall change all our futures. You shall fight like the god of war himself. You have been brought here as the prophecy has decreed. The chosen one. Our journey has just begun. Perhaps you'd prefer a larger blade. You gotta be kidding me. Easy boy. We all better get the hell out of here. May the gods shine upon you and bring you home victorious. I'm your host, Sean, and joining me to chat this one today is a bit of an expert on the films of Uva Bowl, Matt Bradley Churgi, author of the book The Films of Uva Bowl, Volume 1, The Video Game Movies. He is also the host of the podcast Sequel Cast 2 and Friends. Matt, it is a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, sure. Happy to be here. Well, and, and before we get going, I mean, okay, so, I mean, you, you have your, uh, your toes in, in quite a few different uh, hobbies that I wanted to ask you about. Um, but the first one, I guess, we'll, we'll go to is your podcast. Tell us a little bit about uh, Sequel Cast 2 and Friends, because I've listened to quite a few episodes. You guys, man, you guys tackle a variety of different genres. I guess it's fair to say that um, it's, it's a pop culture podcast, but I mean, you guys cover everything from movies to video games to comic books to everything in between right right yeah um it it started originally under the name sequel cast in 2009 so i've been doing it oh, i'm about like 12 years now i guess and it we started with just the movies and i think we just had to expand the scope to a kind of a, do what we wanted to under the the sequel cast special sort of banner and, and so forth we have mark with the c doing our theme songs he's been working with us for a while that's been a lot of fun and um, we've never covered Uwe Boll on the show, oddly enough, which is kind of weird. I always meant to, but then things got in the way. 
but we did do, I guess I should take that back. We did a, a live um, panel at the uh, Portland Retro Gaming Expo, I think in 2018, 2017, something like that, where we talked about Uwe Boll movies. That was by far our most popular one. We had about like 50 or 60 people in the audience. And they were pretty um, excited to win the bizarre merchandise we got sent to give away as prizes. Well, and I mean, okay, so that's an excellent segue there because you wrote the book, Films of Uva Bowl, Volume 1. So I, I'm assuming, obviously, you have a Volume 2 and a Volume 3 in the works. But, uh, yeah, tell us a bit about your book. You know, Because I will just say right now, when I started this podcast, I always try and uh, find guests of other podcasts or friends or whoever it may be who I think would be like – the perfect fit for the film in which we are talking about. And when you and I got in contact and I picked up your book, it was almost kind of like a given. I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of amazing how the forces kind of align for something like this, but it was, it was like, Oh man, I have found the perfect guest for this silly little goofy movie. (laughs) So, so uh, tell us a little bit about your book, particularly, I mean, look, I mean, we, we have a lot. I imagine we're going to be saying a lot about Uva Bowl. Okay. But He's he's a guy who I've discovered people either fans, I guess I should say, either really, really like or just despise, like vehemently just completely despise. And so I guess my first question for you is what spurred you to write an entire book on his films, particularly his video game based movies? Right. I mean, the first Uwe Boll movie, um, I think I talked about this in the introduction in the book. It's been a while since I've read it, but was uh, House of the Dead. Uh, I wanted to see it in the theater. It came out the same weekend, I believe, that um, the American remake of The Ring came out. I was in college at the time, and uh, all my friends went to see The Ring. I would have rather seen House of the Dead, but I had to wait till it came out on videotape, or I guess DVD is one of the format that was out then. And um, it it just really struck me. He did a lot of movies um, based on video games, and I did a video game major in, in college, uh, video game design, I guess. And so it sort of combined some of my interest. And I had the idea for doing a book way back like in, uh, in 2005, but he hadn't really done that many. I didn't really have a focus. And then um, eventually down the line, after talking back and forth when uh, Uwe Boll was um, on Twitter and, and so forth, that just sort of I was looking on Amazon and noticed there was no English language book about Uwe Boll, which I found very surprising. And... Um, I I just thought, well, here we go. So I, I spent a few hundred dollars on Amazon getting like used copies of the movies. I got a Region Two uh, UK like DVD player to play some of the the German imports of things for volumes two and three, which are still being written, uh, albeit a bit slowly. And I decided the video game movies for volume one. In that, you know, if I never did a volume two or volume three, I, I think when people look up Uwe Boll or think about him, it's the video game movies. So I think that was just sort of an easier sell. And I found a small publisher on LinkedIn, and and there we go. I think, it, and the way I approached it is so many reviews of Uwe Boll, you mentioned people love him or hate him, and or, or just so negative, and I decided to try and go positive. And I, I might have overdone it a bit, but I, I think trying to um, put together what was going on in the plot, but kind of things I liked about the uh, uh, performances. And then he has a lot. Uwe Boll, I think, is a complicated man. He has a lot going on uh, in his movies. And, um, I mean, he became famous, I think, for maybe the audio commentaries on the DVDs at first. Oh, yes. People, <laughs> and, and people act like House of the Dead is his first movie, but, like, that's not the case. And kind of like uh, Martin Scorsese with the gangster movies, 
a lot of what he, he does is on a variety of topics. And I, I found that uh, very interesting as well. You know, he's, I mean, I've said it before and I'll, I'll echo it again. I think he is a, he's a fascinating individual. And I mean, and you can pick apart his movies and let's face it. I don't, I don't think his movies are amazing or anything, but um, not only do I find him fascinating, but I mean, he is, he is a really keen businessman. Like he, he knows the market. um, And he was, he was pretty wise to get out when he did, but you know, he's gone on the record as saying, I mean, it looks like, okay, his video game based movies are the films that uh, I think got him the most notoriety as well as the most hate, but he's gone on the record saying that he purely did those video game based movies as a means of not only getting his name out there, but acquiring financing to do his passion projects which were those those projects that really don't get talked about or even mentioned for that matter. But those are those projects where, you know, he is making, you know, political and, and social statements. And I think many can agree that, okay, though those films, like, for example, Attack on Darfur and Stoic and Assault on Wall Street, okay, if you look at those films, those films are so much better made movies than, sure. than the video game movies. And I would say, you know, while the video game movies are, in fact, terrible – they were still the sellers, okay? And he was able to generate the interest and the funds based off of the very name alone. And so case in point, the film that we're talking about today, In the Name of the King 2, I mean, when I spoke with him, he flat out admitted, I mean, if you look at the film, I don't think he is entirely invested in this particular film as he is in the other movies. But again, I think he does these video game movies. Okay, hey, I'll do one video game movie for you for these investors or whatever. So then that way I can do the projects that really speak to me that I really want to tell. And I feel like that is very evident with this particular film. I mean, I think I need to go, I need to look at the uh, his credits on IMDb, but I'm pretty sure that in the name of the King Two, this film we're talking about today was sandwiched in between his more serious think piece films. Right. I mean, at least based on when it was released, it came after the you know the three movies he was making simultaneously of uh, Blood Rain, The Third Reich, Blood Barella, and Auschwitz. And afterwards, he did you know Assault on Wall Street um, and some of the Rampage, uh, Capital Punishment, and President Down. So yeah, you're right. It's sort of in between all those and. Frankly, the, as he does these movies, the budgets go down, but the budget, in uh, at least according to Wikipedia, for uh, In the Name of the King 2 was about uh, $4.5 million, and that's still okay, and you're able to get a name like Dolph Lundgren on the cover. I mean, I think right. that, that's pretty impressive in itself. That's more than I would have expected. Um, in, in fact, you could argue there, that's a more recognizable name than what he had in, in things like uh, uh, Blood Rain or um, House of the Dead and so forth. Well, that that that, that was going to be my next point, which is really fascinating. Again, talk about a really keen businessman here, okay? Because okay, you look at his movies, and yeah, he's he's gone down. I think a lot of the fans refer to him as like one of the worst directors ever, which I don't think is fair. No, it's just easy to say that. Yeah, it's easy to say that. But I mean, you look at the films, and he has gotten some amazing names. Attached. I mean, sure. not wondering, obviously, but if you look at Blood Rain, he had Ben Kingsley, Alone in the Dark. He had Christian Slater. He's had mm-hmm. Ray Yoda, um, Burt Reynolds, for crying out loud. He's had Burt <laughs> Reynolds. Yep. And so you look at that and you're like, man, well, if he is such a bad director, then how is he getting such, you know, such talented and names attached to his projects? And this is something else that I think is pretty fascinating. This is something else that he's gone on the record as saying. I think he said this in one of the documentaries that was, uh, 
made about him. But his method of attracting name stars and actors, what he does is he'll go to various agencies and he'll see who is available last minute for two to three weeks. Okay, so he waits until the last minute and he just goes to these agencies and says, okay, who do you have available? Okay, and most actors jump at the opportunity because let's face it, it's a huge paycheck for two weeks worth of work. And they and these particular actors don't have really anything else going on. So if you look at a project, say, for example, like uh, the first in the name of the King movie, the one with Jason Statham, that one has such an eclectic cast of actors, has Ray Liotta and Matthew Lillard and Lily Sobieski. And you look at it and you're thinking like, really? Like, are these are these actors the best choices for these various roles? And I think what it was is, again, uh, Uwe Boll came to their agencies last minute with a fat check in hand. They had an opening in their schedule. So, of course, they're not going to turn that down. Of course, they're going to uh, they're, they're going to take it. And with with this particular film, OK, in the name of the king, too, that was exactly what happened with uh, with Dolph Lundgren. OK, so as the story goes, initially, uh, Dolph was initially approached and he did turn it down. OK, so he turned it down on the first the first time Uber Bowl asked him. And so I guess according to the commentary on this one, because I don't know about you, Matt, but. I've listened to the commentary of this. Uh, I listened to Uwe Boll's commentary, and then I also listened to Michael Nashoff's commentary. So I've watched this <laughs> film multiple times. Wow. But um, they were going to go to Steve Austin once Once Dolph turned it down. They were like, okay, well, we'll go to Steve Austin. He hmm. seems available. But then they approached Dolph a few weeks later. And I think what happened is there are a couple things here. Dolph must have realized that he didn't have any other projects that were going to be rolling before the cameras for at least a few months. But... He also had a divorce. Okay. So he also uh-huh. had a divorce here. And so again, this is a last minute production. He has a fat paycheck in hand for just a couple of weeks of work. Well, an opportunity arose for something pretty easy. And so uh, there you go. So that, I think that explains Dolph's casting. But with regard to his other casting, again, I think that's, uh, that, 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 that's pretty interesting here. I mean, again, Alone in the Dark, the first one, Tara Reed is in there. Like, and you're like, why is Tara Reid in this movie? Like, she is like the worst possible choice as an anthropologist. But again, if he went to her agency last minute, she was available. She was a name. There you go. Yeah, and Uwe Boll complains a lot about Tara Reid um, on the, the commentary on that Alone in the Dark. Uh, and, and that he even did separate commentaries for, like, the director's cut, which is kind of hard to find and, and, and all these different things. It's... Uh, Interesting to to see what he has going on. I mean, um, you mentioned the documentaries. Uh, the first one, Raging Bull, uh, around that time is when I was starting to write the book, and that one happened to pop up on Amazon Prime. And uh, I was having real trouble with the first chapter on um, House of the Dead. I was trying to figure out, well, how am I going to write this? Is this going to be like really short kind of Leonard Moulton reviews, or, or what kind of a book is this going to be? And towards the end, Uwe Bull goes on a, a bit of a rant as he tends to do. And, and he talks about, well, you know, maybe someday someone will write a book about me and I'll be appreciated. And that sort of made me go, aha. Okay. So if I go from the book from a more positive angle, maybe that'll be something. And um, I mean, I didn't write it to get, to get compliments really, but I, I got a nice note from Uwe Boll. I got a nice note from Chris Coppola, who was in, um, he's not in, in the name of the King too, but he was like in postal as one of the main bad guys. And also in, uh, the uh, oh, Blood Rain 2 Deliverance, the Western one. So, I mean, that's always nice to, to hear uh, compliments from people that worked in these movies because I'm just really given my opinion. And 
I've gotten negative reviews on Amazon in French, which is interesting, where they say, oh, it's not about the making of the books. But nowhere do I state it's about the making of the movies. But so I think it, people kind of like they come to his movies with wanting to hate it or, or whatever. And I sort of knew it wouldn't be a book that would be well liked. But I'm glad uh, uh, you enjoyed it. And I'm glad some other people I, I've got some nice notes here and there from people. And uh, it's always good to hear this thing I, I worked on for like over a year uh, was uh, uh, well received by some people. Well, you know, I remember first hearing about this film, that this film was in development in 2010. I don't know when you heard about mm-hmm. it or when it first came um, on your radar, but I first heard about its development in 2010. Basically, Uva Bowl was on a podcast. And again, I've, I've been I've found the guy to be a, uh, a fascinating enigma ever since he first came on the, on the scene and was on everyone's radar, thanks to uh, uh, House of the Dead in 2003. So I had been following the guy. And I remember he's on a podcast and he was asked what his next project was. And he mentioned this one as well as the fact that Dolph Lundgren was going to be the lead. And, and at the time, I remember, I mean, and it's hard to believe that this was well over 10 years ago, but I was in a bit of a disbelief at the time, not just at the fact that they were doing a sequel to In the Name of the King, which I had seen, but I got to be honest, I don't even think I finished it all the way through. It was, it, it was a bit of a long one. So I was in disbelief at that, the fact that a sequel was even greenlit because I think it was like a huge box office loss in, in terms of, uh, in terms of us, you know what I mean? In terms of the U S box office. Sure. But I was also kind of surprised that Dolph was choosing this as his follow-up film. Thanks to the expendables. Now Dolph had a bit of steam and mainstream heat once again, thanks to the expendables. Okay, I mean, he was back on the big screen. He was, you know, he was in kind of everyone's, uh, he was in the public consciousness, I guess you can say once again. So I was thinking, okay, I wasn't really expecting him to be getting tons of, you know, theatrical work again. But I remember at the time thinking like, okay, well, he's going to be getting some more promising projects. And so for the very next, for the next follow-up film for him to do, for it to be an Uva Bull film, I remember thinking like, oh boy, is this the best thing? But when you hear what he was going through, okay, I mean, I, I think a lot of times with a lot of these actors, we have to realize that, look, they're working Joes. And in the end, I think their jobs maybe are a little more exciting and flashier than yours and mine. But in the end, their Joes taking paychecks like you and I do. And here, Dolph is going through a divorce at the moment, like I said. He needed some cash to pay for those, uh, to pay for those lawyers because, you know, divorces aren't cheap. This was a relatively quick and painless shoot. So I think Dolph figured, you know, hey, why not? And as a fan of Dolph, I remember thinking, okay, would I have liked his follow-up to The Expendables to be something else? Of course I would. However, when you hear what he was or what he was going through in his personal life, I also get it. You know what I mean? Sure. And I'm looking here, you know, him with the sword. I think, you know, the first time I saw Dolph Lundgren in something would have been uh, Masters of the Universe. (laughs) Yeah. The the He-Man movie. And that he hadn't really done this kind of genre in a while. And that um, in the name of the King too, and, and, and the third one for that matter, which Dolph is not in uh, it, it kind of make it a fish out of water story. I think make it very, the, the connection to the first movie, let's say is very, very tenuous. Well, I mean, and you're, I mean, is it fair to say you're a gamer, right? Yes. I mean, yeah. Are you yep. a gamer? Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I am not. I mean, I, I had an Xbox at one time, but sadly I had to, I had to get rid of it and everything like that. So, I mean, I haven't played a game in a long time. I'm going to be looking at you and referring to sure. you as a bit of an, an expert here. Okay. So okay. 
Matt, the, the first In the Name of the King movie was in fact based on a video game called Dungeon Siege. Is that right? Yep. Okay. And how, I mean, how close, how closely related are the two, are the two properties? I mean, would you say that the, the first film is a, uh, a just adaptation of the game? I, I would say no. I mean, except from the beginning, you, you do play as a farmer named Farmer whose uh, town gets attacked and he's trying to, uh, you know, there is a character with the same name as the Burt Reynolds King, but he's just kind of in a dungeon near the end of the game and has maybe two lines of dialogue. It's not a very plot focused game. On the other hand, you're sort of wandering around the world and going through caves and the forest and dungeons um, more like a, a, a Diablo kind of game where you're clicking on enemies to fight them, kind of more um, action-based, I guess, as far as RPGs go. So, I mean, they picked something, Dungeon Siege, where it, it has a cool name, but as far as a plot, there's not much there. They're using some character names, but uh, but that's about it. Which is, is interesting. I think that's what pissed off so many video game fans with Uwe Boll's work, is here. he takes these video game-based properties and then he does films based on them, and they really don't have any. Like, if you look at the first Blood Rain movie, it's my understanding that that sure. has nothing to do with the game. Uh, right. House, House of the Dead, which I always thought that was kind of an unfair criticism here. Like, okay, you're going to make a movie based on House of the Dead, which is essentially just a shooting game. What story is there, really? You know what I mean? <laughs> it, exactly. And I think people, when, when you play these games, especially the older ones, you have to use your imagination a lot as far as what's happening, and you're putting all this time into it. And if you were really to make a, a game uh, uh, into something, it would probably be a mini series, maybe. But that's only for plot, more plot focused things like Metal Gear, or I don't know, Uncharted, or, or Tomb Raider, or some of those. Uh, I think that might be a bit closer. But if you look at a, a lot of games, you know the the plot is kind of ripping off of other things. The voice acting is appalling. Uh, it's not a reason why people play a lot of these things. Well, and I mean, okay, so looking at this film, okay, mm-hmm. in the name of the King 2, okay, it's my understanding that this film is, it's basically a sequel in name only. I mean, it's not even, a, it's not a sequel or has any relation to the game. It's more a sequel to the first in the name of the King movie. But I mean, as I was looking at this, the ties to the original are extremely loose to almost non-existent, right? I mean, you could watch yeah. you can watch this film without having seen the original, and you're still going to be able to, you know, understand the plot, and you're not going to be missing out on much, right? That's right. Uh, you know, there's there's a scene kind of later on in the film where um, you get this exposition of of the origins of Granger that that imply things to the original film, but unless you know that's where they're going with it, it could just be anything. So you can absolutely watch this as a standalone, and perhaps I think in some ways that might be better because you won't go in with it, with, with expectations, thinking this kind of uh, these epic battles in in the rain and and all these kind of things in the first one. I don't think there were too many uh, fans of the original who went into the sequel just who left it completely pissed off, like what there was no relation <laughs> at all to. <laughs> to Ray Liotta here or Lily Sobieski, you know, what about Matthew Lillard's offspring? Like, come on. Um, (laughs) But but, I mean, if you look at all of Dolph Lundgren's films, this was relatively a first for him. Okay. Because outside of uh, He-Man and the masters of the universe, this was really the first time we had seen him in a fantasy type film. And I will say that, okay, at the time, it was odd picturing him starring in a film like this because this really wasn't something within his wheelhouse, 
okay, something that he had really done or anything that I think he was really familiar with. And I will say upon watching it again, you know, 10 years later after I initially saw it the first time, it's still odd seeing him in this particular project. Previous episodes, I mean, I directed you to these. I, I had the pleasure mm-hmm. of speaking with uh, Uva Boll, as well as uh, the writer of this film, Michael Nashoff. Got to speak with him for a, uh, a previous episode. So it's interesting because, okay, watching the film first and then getting to speak with the two individuals who essentially um, came up with the idea and got it off the ground made the made my most recent viewing experience, I will say, an interesting one. And uh, I, I don't know how it was for you on your most recent viewing experience, but I guess, did you enjoy it more the second go around or were you pretty much uh, had the same reaction the first time? I, I think I enjoyed it more the second go around. Part of it is you're not going, what the hell is happening in here with the story and everything? Because it, it jumps around a little bit with the stuff in the present, the stuff in the past and, and kind of the tone, but that's, um, you know, Uvi Bull's movies aren't really as concerned with, with plot as some of the others, uh, other directors. Uh, but th- with this, I mean, what I noticed is there is a lot of humor in the script that it, maybe I didn't pick up the first time around and to have Dolph Lundgren have, um, you know, sort of punchlines or making these kind of fish out of water jokes. It doesn't work all the time. And yet on the other hand, he does some really interesting work where it's just him alone in his office drinking that scotch yeah. uh, doing the monologue about his uh, fallen comrades in battle I, I guess what jumped to me is that I really would have loved to have seen kind of a scene uh, it would have been expensive of course but when he was in the special forces right a bit more of his background and, and what he lost because uh, he just seems like a man in a way that has sort of uh, given up and now he's he's thrown into this different world and having to uh you know, not smart off to the king as much or else he'll be executed. Well, that's something actually that Michael Nashop echoed to me as well. I mean, that's something that he's mentioned to me. And that's something also that he said in the commentary and which, and can we just say real quick regarding yeah. the commentaries on these particular films, what is fascinating is both in Uva Bowl's commentary and in Michael Nashop's commentary, they both take phone calls. I don't know if you picked up on that or not. Yes. I mean, Uva Bowl's commentaries, I mean, that right there could be a whole discussion and podcast entirely in itself. What's interesting about Uva Bowl is his commentaries are always such a trip. I remember listening to his commentary on Far Cry, on on, on the Far Cry. And I don't know if you've listened to it or not, but he's eating a cheeseburger as he's doing the commentary. Like you can hear him. He got yeah. takeout him, him and the, uh, the, one of the producers got takeout. And so you hear him kind of, you know, opening up the styrofoam and cutting his burger. And everything. Like, he, he complains about the onions on the burger. I remember that. And in yeah. another one of his commentaries, he just leaves to get a piece of cake. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and one of them, it, it might be for the, in the name of the King two worlds, he answers a phone call in German and proceeds yep. to have a phone call in German. Yep. And you're like, what? <laughs> yeah. In fact, in Michael Nashoff's commentary, um, he does the same. He's like, he says, well, I'm going to answer my phone as well. Cause Uva Bull did it in his. So I'm going to answer <laughs> my phone. It's pretty good. But you know, something that he mentions in his commentary, which he reiterated to me in our conversation was how very rarely the script that gets written 
is the one that is ultimately filmed and shot. And so yep. according to his commentary, the script was initially written where Granger was working as like a security guard in an art museum. However, you know, quite a few aspects had to be changed due to the budget and the shooting locations and availability as well as the inclusion of Dolph. Once, once, you know, I mean, and other, other writers that I've spoken to and directors have just said the same thing. Once Dolph is added to a project, well, it becomes very clear that it's a Dolph Lundgren movie. So they have to kind of adjust things to, you know, suit what Dolph can and cannot do. And so once Dolph is included, first of all, the museum, the art museum aspect of the film was completely excised due to the fact that they couldn't find a museum to film these, uh, these necessary scenes. And once Dolph came on board, he had some very clear ideas to flesh out his character as well. So gone was the whole security guard aspect and in comes the war hero element where they made him, you know, a former, uh, you know, a, a former special forces badass, if you will. And so in this particular film, all right, he's playing the character of Granger, who is this, uh, like I said, former special forces badass. He's living in Vancouver and uh, teaching karate classes to some kids. We, we find out, kind of like you said, he has a bit of a tortured past where he lost a few guys under his command from uh, what we can assume were some tours in the Middle East. And so, you know, I mean, this is this is action movie 101, basically here. OK, if you're going to establish that your character here is a badass. OK. And, you know, was was amazing at one time. Well, then, yeah, I mean, it only makes sense that you have an opening sequence in the film where you see him in the Middle East leading his team, you know, through battle or whatever it may be. But unfortunately, in the end, they uh, they didn't have the budget. They didn't have the time. They didn't have the uh, availability to to make something like that work. And so what we get is uh, <laughs> what we get is him, I guess, what, teaching karate in a, uh, you know, to, to kids in a dojo. Um, I guess that is going to service the need to show that he's a badass. Well, they're going to show him throwing down in front of some kids basically, right? Yeah, it feels like something out of a Karate Kid sequel, uh, <laughs> to, to be frank. And on the other hand, I don't know. I mean, you, you that you get to see him with kids gives him a certain sort of warmth. Yeah. Uh, he makes doesn't... Vulnerable, yeah. Makes him vulnerable. I mean, he doesn't interact with kids when he's uh, transported to the other uh, dimension or whatever where the movie takes place. But it, it, it's an unexpected opening, that's for sure. It's just, I mean... <laughs> It's just kind of funny, okay? You have you have Dolph come on board, and he says, "Well, look, I, I need to be tough. I need to show that you know if the audience is going to believe me, if they're going to follow me on this journey and believe me kicking ass as I do in these films, well, then you need to give me something within the first five minutes that show me as being a a, a formidable force, if you will, okay?" And they said basically, "Well, ah, Dolph, we can't do a war scene, but we do have access to a dojo as well as some kids." Can you just do that? And Dolph said, uh, "All right, forget it. I'll make it work." <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And um, I mean, the way the the movie opens too is a bit un- unusual. You see a woman, woman being chased. Dolph Lundgren does this voiceover where you don't really know the context about what he's talking about, and then the camera kind of goes up, and you see that it's uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. That you think she's in medieval times, but it's uh, it's in modern day, and. Uh, that was a cool shot, actually. That yeah, reveal. Yeah, that, that was a good reveal. And it's like, oh, this yeah. is something different. Yeah, that was a good reveal. Well, and I mean, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but, you know, as I was watching it and as I did a little more uh, research for the film. Okay, so Granger, which, by the way, 
means farmer, which happened to be Jason Statham's name in, in the in the name of the king. One, I don't know if you uh, picked up on that or not. Yep. So the, <laughs> those are the ties right there between the two, Matt. <laughs> Pretty <know>? much. <laughs> um. So he comes home from his karate class. I thought this was interesting. So he comes home. He uh, obviously we can assume he went grocery shopping because he's carrying a bag of groceries. And you know, movie cliche, I guess you can call it whatever. Inside his bag, all we see is just paper towels sticking out. He just gets one thing of paper towels, and that that indicates okay, he went grocery shopping, right? Yeah. So, so he comes home from his uh, karate class where he is attacked by some masked medieval assassins and he fends them off and then is magically teleported back to evil. Uh, excuse me. He fends them off and then is magically teleported back to medieval times. Thanks to the help of a medieval fighter named Eliana uh, played by friend of the show, Natalie Byrne, actually, who we, we spoke with on a, uh, on a previous episode. She later did a couple films with Dolph acceleration and uh, hard night falling. But I don't know if, uh, if this bugged you as well as it did me, but how she has this magical ability to travel through time is never explained. Is it? No, it's not. And you learn a little bit about the prophecy, but it takes a while before you learn what the prophecy is. And you're seeing so many different people's faces kind of flashed as uh, he's being attacked when he's transported and kind of throughout the movie. It's a bit of a jumble. I don't maybe they were trying to go for a mystery there. I'm not quite sure. But you did. I mean, when you and I were speaking about this, I mean, you really appreciated and liked the scene where he poured himself a drink and. I, I did. His, yeah. His fallen war buddies. We get some sadness from Dolph here. And this is one of the uh, moments of the film that, um, that you liked. And I can actually see its merit as well. Cause I think it's one of the, uh, uh, one of the best parts of this film. Sure. I mean, it lets him act with a, he, he speaks a little bit, but it's just all in his face. And I was reminded a little bit of what he would do in his performance in um, Creed two, bringing back even Drago where he doesn't really have a lot of dialogue and you just have to, he has to do it almost like a silent film actor. It's all in his face and you can tell there's a history. He's thinking about things. Yeah. And it's, uh, I like when he takes that drink in his office, it's a bit of a ritual. He even uses a, a Sharpie for some reason to mark on the bottle. <laughs> yeah, which I don't know why he needs that, but um, it's, yeah. it's something that clearly he, his character has done a lot of times in the past and he does it once a year. And uh, it's, it was just a nice sort of touch. I wasn't expecting that. And uh, it's because of limitations of budget, but he really makes that work. And they kind of bring it full circle at the end with the even stuff with him setting, setting a drawing the bath and that huge bathtub comes in the end. So, yeah, I, I have some uh, feelings regarding the end here, but we'll, okay. we'll, we'll get, to that. <laughs> we'll get <Yep>. to that. Um, <laughs> you know, but so now basically Dolph goes back in time. I mean, the film really doesn't uh, skip too many beats. I mean, he is back, you know, in medieval times, he's transported back to this, uh, this medieval time. Uh, what w- within 10 minutes of the film, actually. I mean, it's, it's yeah, really, pretty really fast. Quick. Yeah. So now basically Dolph is playing this uh, man out of time where this allows him to kind of flex his comedic chops and he has uh, he has fun with this conceit. I mean, he has some he has some fun lines that he that he says. You know, being this man out of time. I remember one he uh, he tells one of the uh, one of the medieval guys who really has a disdain for him. What does he tell him? Like, um, go be go be a good medieval bitch and uh, re- yeah. respond to your <laughs> king or something like that. 
But, you know, one thing, if we're going to look at this film, one thing that we do have to, um, that we do have to discuss is, okay, whereas the first In the Name of the King movie, I mean, the first one had a whopping budget of $65 million. I mean, it's hard to believe that the first one was made on such a huge, you know, a, a amount of money right there, but was made on $65 million. This one was made for not even a small fraction of that. It was reported uh, four to, what is it? Four and a half million, four to four and a half million, something like that. So to cut corners, they had to really simplify quite a bit, especially in terms of production design. And so I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but this is what I found interesting. So, okay, this is working with, you know, quite a small budget, especially compared to the first one. So what do they do? And so what the production team decided to, uh, to do here to kind of simplify things is instead of building an entire castle, what we basically get is the front of a castle. I mean, it's it's almost kind of like a, a stage play if, in a way, okay, where they just build the front of the set. So they build the front of the castle, and then the rest of the movie is everyone running through the forest, okay? So they're using pretty much the uh, the land itself, nature, if you will, as, uh, as being its set, which, okay, if you're going to have a low budget, I... I think that makes that makes sense, and it, especially considering the the forest where this is filmed. I mean, I'd say about seventy percent of the action in this film takes place in uh, Golden Ears National Park in British Columbia. And talk about instant production value, because I mean the the the, the shots of the forest in this film. I will say, if you want to give some merit to the film, the uh, the exterior shots of this forest just looks beautiful. I mean, I have never been here, but I, I, after watching this, I told my wife, like, you know, wouldn't it be cool to go hiking through Golden Ears National Park? Because it just looks so majestic and beautiful. And I didn't know this, but this is actually also where the original Rambo movie, First Blood, was also filmed. Oh, how about that? Okay, yeah. Um, it, no, I mean, you get a lot of good shots of the woods, like you said, and that's interesting about the castle, but it, it, it does feel like a renaissance fair a little bit. There you go. That's what I was the term I was looking for. Yeah, it feels like a <laughs> renaissance fair. I mean, everybody who is, and we're going to be getting to the the king, the guy who plays uh, Raven. I mean, he feels like he just stepped right out of a renaissance fair. But yeah, you're right. It does feel like something like that you would you know pay 20 bucks to uh, walk around and you get the front of the castle and everybody is saying uh, Syrah and whatnot, right? Like... <laughs> All yeah, you're, people, all you're missing is uh, a turkey leg. So. Right, you need the turkey legs. You need uh, people trying to sell five hundred dollar uh, suits of chainmail armor. <laughs> all the kind of cheesy stuff that goes on, right? Uh, but it's I've been I mean, to a Renaissance fair. Yes. Sorry, but I've been to a Renaissance fair once in my life, Matt, and it was it, it took that one time for me to say, "Yeah, you know what? I don't need to come to one of these ever again in my life." Like. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been to one, but I, I have. Yeah, I, um, I mainly grew up in Georgia, I guess, around Atlanta, and, and they have one there that's pretty big. And it's it's just exactly what you think it is. I'm sure it's fun to work at one, maybe if you're dressed up and have to be in character all day. But it, it, it's so strange. Like, why why is that something that still happens? Like, <laughs> I could see going to medieval times and you see like a, a jousting show or something and you get the turkey leg. That makes a little bit more sense to me. It's almost like a, a fake sporting event. But to to walk around in the dust, uh, it's really hot. Um, a lot of people are just wearing like T-shirts and stuff like that really takes you out of a medieval feel. Yeah, there's just not much there compared to I don't know, like a zoo or a museum or something. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Well, I mean, 
So <laughs> Granger is uh, one, once he's back in time, he's sent on a mission. Okay, and we find out that he's he's to fulfill this ancient prophecy and defeat the quote unquote dark ones who have uh, ravaged the quote unquote kingdom. I, uh, <laughs> I I I like to put kingdom in quotes actually because. It's a really sad looking kingdom. I mean, again, mm-hmm. all we get is the front of the castle and we're that's the kingdom, Matt. There you go. That that's that's the land. And Granger leads a team into the forests where they engage in multiple sword battles. None of these sword battles in the film really distinguish themselves from one another. It's pretty much just one battle after another. And uh I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but Dolph really doesn't get to do much in these scenes because he had just come off of a hip surgery. So oh. much of these uh, scenes with him in the in the forest doing battle, that had to be done with a stunt double. So if you watch the film, he's really just kind of standing, waiting for the attackers to come to him rather than charging them because he had that hip surgery. And even nowadays, if you see him running in films, it's... Uh, I mean, look, I haven't had a hip surgery or anything, so I can only imagine. But yeah, you're not going to see from about, I'd say, 2008 onward, you don't really see Dolph running too much in his films anymore. So that's why a lot of these uh, these forest battles look a little sad, especially on, on Dolph's behalf. No, I think that makes sense. You can see he has some uh, pain as he's moving around in the bed where the assassin, the woman assassin tries to get him. And uh, I mean, listen, you know, people's bodies as they age get enough ravaged on them. I can't imagine doing action films or, yeah, you know, is good for the body to say nothing of like the professional wrestlers and all those guys, um, your knees constantly hitting the mat all the time. It's, uh, got to take its toll. And, um, but, but Dolph, Dolph gets through it. You know, he's, uh, he's kept himself in, in shape. And I, I like what you said about the, the humor in this. We both touched on it a little bit. It gives him something to do with the dialogue. It gives him a bit of an attitude because otherwise, if he didn't have the humor, what would you have to his character, really? Well, and I will say, I mean, okay, when you hear what was going on with this particular film, I mean, okay, the production is, you know, is working with what they have, but the production is also pretty rushed at times, I feel. And it's also pretty evident that uh, Michael Nashoff's script was altered in many scenes. So one scene that, I don't know if, I don't know how you felt about it or not, but one scene that I felt just came off as awkward is where Nastasia Maltz's character, Manhattan, we haven't really talked about her, but this is, this is the character who, uh, who Dolph's Granger character is going to be teaming up with on his, on his adventure. But there's a scene where she basically offers herself to, to Granger. And what does she say? She wants to uh, sleep with him since they're going to be going into battle the next day. And she doesn't want to die unfulfilled. And so, okay. What we see, (laughs) what's what's so funny here is, okay. She, you know, crawls into bed with him or whatever. And then the camera cuts away. We can assume they sleep together, but then in the next scene, Dolph is still fully clothed. Like, (laughs) It's kind of like, yeah, oh, she's on top oh, of him, fully clothed, and kind of shakes the dress around. But uh, you see almost an identical, awkward uh, lovemaking scene, if that's what it's supposed to be, in uh, Guillermo del Toro's *Crimson Peak*. Has um, a similar romance scene that just doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think you know maybe maybe Uve wanted nudity and she wouldn't do it or something. I mean, because yeah. 
Natasha before too. Like, didn't he but, want nudity from Tara Reid, and she didn't want to do it, and that pissed him correct. off. Correct. And know. with with Natasha um, Malta, she was the part of Blood Rain and Blood Rain Two and Three. He wanted her to do nudity in Blood Rain Two. She wouldn't do it, but she does it in Blood Rain Three. And in Blood Rain Three, I mean, I think she does a better performance as as Rain uh, compared to the second one. The third one's the one in uh, Nazi Germany. Um, but, but anyhow, yeah, in this movie, I think she's she's okay. You know, she does an accent that works. They don't quite. It, it's, it's clear some stuff was maybe cut because her character kind of goes in and out, is gone for big sections of the movie. Well, and it's little things like this that I, I sometimes feel that Uva Bowl should take into consideration. I mean, it's very clear, and I think every all the actors who've worked with him have uh, have echoed this as well. But I mean, he likes to shoot quick. I mean, he mm-hmm. does like a lot of kind of guerrilla filmmaking, if you will, where he just likes to shoot fast, move on, get to the next scene. And so similar to Ed Wood, which, again, I don't really think is that fair of a comparison. U- Uwe Boll gets kind of uh, uh, picked as being the Ed Wood for the next generation, even though I think that Uwe Boll is much better than Ed Wood. But I get the vibe, and I don't know if you've picked up on this or not either, but I get the vibe a lot of times that with Uwe Boll, it's pretty much one to two takes and moving on. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he, he sure. just wants to get it in the can. He wants to get it in the can. He's also said in um, in interviews and commentaries that that's something that a lot of actors like with him is that they get to do a lot of setups in one day. They like to keep things moving on. on oh, I mean, this is from a long time ago, but I recall reading somewhere when they were making Jurassic Park 3 in Hawaii, they might get an eighth of a script page done in a day because wow. of all the special effects months and months where the actor's there and you're just reacting to something that isn't there. Not much is happening with Uwe Boll. He likes to shoot quickly. He likes to keep the uh, the story moving. He likes to have his characters moving all the time uh, from one place to another. Even if this film, if it's the woods, like you said, the production value, it gives it some kind of scope. And it is sort of surprising. I wouldn't say surprising, but the way this deals with like a, a bad guy in it with uh, the character played by Lachlan Monroe, the king, is um, something pretty unique that we were talking about uh, before the show. Well, okay, that was giving me my next point. So amazing segue there again, Matt. All right, so <laughs> Lachlan, <laughs> Lachlan Monroe as the evil king uh, whose name is Raven. Wow, where to even begin here? Um, again, kind of going along with what uh, what I said earlier in terms of the casting, I think Lachlan Monroe was someone else who was available for a couple days at his various agency, and Uva Bowl said, you know, let's do it. I don't... I don't know what's going on here. I have I have quite a few issues with this particular um, not so much well, how do I how do I want to say this? I have some issues with the actor picked to play the king, but also the way in which they present the king as well in the film is problematic. I mean, for one, I don't know if you felt this or not, but I think Lachlan Monroe, he's completely miscast here. I mean, he is just he is not, you know, believable in any way. He looks absolutely terrible in the film with that stubble and that ill-fitting wig, um, the cape and the crown that he's wearing. I mean, he looks like he's literally stepped out of a uh, of like a LARP convention here. I yeah, mean, the, the crown in particular with the hair, it doesn't quite work. He's doing this accent that kind of goes on and off, and I'm sort yeah. of the of the opinion if you can't do an accent just don't do it don't do it yeah because people aren't going to be thinking that that closely it's more noticeable if you do an accent for just one scene as opposed to you know the, the whole time and he the way he introduces his character he's like way too jovial he's too nice you got a feeling 
this guy is hiding something. But not only that, later in the film, uh, there's a, he talks early on, he talks about, you know, the Raven is, is a bad guy or whatever. It turns out he's the Raven and the camera makes it obvious who he is. I thought they'd kind of make that more of a mystery. Oh yeah. But on, but on the other hand, it's no surprise with the way he's being all buddy, buddy with Granger um, as soon as he shows up. Well, once it's revealed that he's the main villain, it's not surprising in the least. I mean, as soon as he mm-hmm. comes on screen, you know that that's the bad guy. You know that that's going to be the antagonist. Yep. Okay. Okay. This is, <laughs> I know this is silly to kind of mention, but why the wig? Like, okay. If they want to give the character a wig, fine, but it's a terrible wig. It is so bad. And I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but right when they're introducing his character, there is a shot early on in the film. And I can't figure out if it was meant to be in the film or if it was, you know, a, a, if it was something that was shot and Lachlan Monroe didn't know that he was being filmed here, but there is a scene of him putting on the wig. Of him oh, I didn't catch that. That's funny. Early to... on. And so, yeah, it's, it's right when they introduce his character, right when Dolph gets brought into the main, the main open courtyard outside of the, the front of the castle or whatever. And right before they bring out the, the, the King, they see him kind of adjusting his wig and then he throws the crown on his head. And so it just, Again, like I said earlier, it, it feels like something out of like a, a LARP convention or a Renaissance fair or something like that. You know, what, what it reminded me of, to be perfectly honest, what it reminded me of, did you ever see the film Role Models with Paul Rudd and Sean William Scott? Oh, yeah, yeah. Remember the king in that movie? Yes. Uh, played, played by the actor from The Hangover? I mean, that's literally what yeah. this feels like here. <laughs> no, I mean, it does feel more like something out of Saturday Night Live or, yeah. or Mad TV or something. It doesn't... It gets it on a bad foot, and then when it turns out he's the bad guy, he can't really bring the goods there. They do have the whole thing of him having kind of like these – he wants to poison people, and, and he has these kind of potions. But it's it's just not set up very well. I think what's more interesting is you have uh, Granger being told about the prophecy – and it turns out it's all sort of a, a trap to get him to do these uh, bad things and make him look like the bad guy. I thought that was mildly interesting, but they don't, they speed things along so fast. Like you don't really right. get much of a sense of, of what's happening. I would love to read the original script. I'm sure it's a lot more uh, cohesive. And I, I think Michael Nashoff would echo that as well. Michael Nashoff mm-hmm. actually also wrote the script. You mentioned it earlier, but he also did the script for uh, Blood Rain 3, Third Reich. Yep. Yeah. So he admitted that to me as well when we were talking that, uh, look, what was shot was not what was originally intended. There were quite a few scenes in there that were not in his script. And he was kind of thinking, like, look, narratively, this doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense here. Like, are you sure you want to do it? But again, it's Uva Boll who likes to kind of, you know, film on the edge of, uh, you know, at the edge of the seat of his pants or whatever. You know what I mean? So he's got to he's got to kind of make do with uh, with what they're doing here. But looking at the film, okay, so Granger, he enters the forest, okay, once he figures out that he needs to, you know, fulfill this prophecy or whatever. He enters the forest, and he needs to find, again, the quote-unquote catalyst, okay, that is going to uh, save the kingdom, if you will, which is a baby dragon, basically. So it's not a fully grown dragon, it's a baby dragon, and what this catalyst... The, the whole goal of it is by finding the dragon, he's pretty much going to set the dragon free. The dragon is going to fly in, swoop in, and topple the kingdom that was led by Raven and allow the uh, kingdom to be to what be reclaimed by the people of the forest. Because once Raven came in, he pretty much exiled you know, everybody out into the forest so that he could take over. And so this dragon is pretty much going to be, is going to lead the army to you know, front their assault, right? 
Yeah. Uh, the dragon looks okay. Like you said, it's a baby dragon. Uh, it's not bad. It's no. For a director. It, it, yeah, yeah. For a director video, it's fine. I, I think um, that it's in the woods, that does help it a bit because you can use the shadows and things to kind of make it look more menacing than it is. Uh, I, I did like the scene. It reminded me a bit of the part with Samuel L. Jackson in Deep Blue Sea where a soldier is giving a big speech and the dragon just comes and squishes him. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think when the film was in pre-production or when Uva Bowl was selling it, you know, and, and trying to get financing for it, he, that was one of the big selling points for it was he wanted to, a dragon in this film. Because he felt like, okay, the first film, which is based on Dungeon Siege, and I don't know if uh, in the in the video game are there dragons in the game? I have no idea. Probably. It's been a long time right. since I've played it. Um, but so, l- let's say there are. It's okay, pretty likely. Yeah. So, And I think that's what Uwe Boll wanted. He said, okay, look, there weren't dragons in the original film. So, okay, if this is going to be working with uh, you know a small fraction of the budget of the original, well, I'm going to put some money toward a a dragon in this film and I'm going to put a dragon there. And so I would say on that front, he did deliver uh, in listening to uh Nashop's commentary regarding this dragon. He, I, I don't know if he wrote it as such to where it was going to be like this kind of small little dragon, but he liked it to where, and I, I remember listening to it and thinking, okay, it kind of makes sense because if you think about it, like, okay, how is a dragon going to be able to hide in the woods and not be detective? But you know what I mean? But this particular dragon it almost seems kind of feral in a lot yeah. of ways. Like, it, yeah. I mean, it's really skinny, like it's been living off the land and everything. So, uh, I mean, I'm not a dragon or fantasy expert, but when you hear that, it's kind of like, all right, I guess that makes a little sense there. Sure. I mean, I bet they're also, we're thinking when they're trying to sell it, Game of Thrones was still going on at the time. Yeah. So dragons were big in that. I'm sure anything with dragon in it was a, a, you had how to train your dragon. You had those cartoons, right? So I think all that stuff makes it a an easier sell to uh, financiers. But um, it, the dragon does pick up the action a bit, makes it a bit uh, different as well as what's what's going on, which I think is nice. Because if you just have people running in the woods, that works up to a certain point. You need something to kick it up a notch towards the end. Well, and we also get the revelation uh, near the end that, uh, all right, here's, here's our ties to the original. Um, the former king was actually Jason Statham's character from the first film. And that Granger is the son of Jason Statham's character. So again, we have that that connection. Granger equals farmer. Get it? Um, <laughs> even though even though uh, Statham's character is never really mentioned by name, he's just known as uh, the King. So we do get some ties and lineage to the first movie. Which also, I mean, the entire time going through this, I was wondering, okay, why was Dolph picked here? Like, what 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 is this prophecy he needs to fulfill? So I guess in the end it does answer the question of why Dolph of all people was chosen to go back in time and go on this particular mission. Yeah, you're right. And with that speech, I mean, they talk about, I don't know if they needed to make it so complicated where it's like he was born in this land and then was taken to earth and left there as an orphan. And then they do a very clumsy sort of flashback to the beginning of the film. And it turns out his mother was there dressed in black as he was beating up the guy on his staircase. Well, and so it turns out, okay, again, not a surprise in the least, but that uh, Raven is the villain of the film, like we said earlier. He's yeah. also an expert alchemist, 
and mm-hmm. I found it. I found it kind of interesting. They they establish these as expert alchemist who has all these uh, knowledge of chemicals, but then they see him mixing the chemicals and everything, and he's not really even wearing gloves or anything like that. Like <laughs> I, I, I right. get that it's medieval times, but it's kind of like, dude, you're 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 messing with like disastrous plagues here. Like, but <laughs> in any case, we find out. Okay, what he created this plague to wipe out the previous king, thus giving him the opportunity to be king. And so he is responsible for all the destruction that we see, basically. That, that's the main conflict and crux of this. Yep. It is, and, and we could have used that earlier in the film, I think. It, it's your, you do have some suspense as they are racing towards uh, the portal near the end of the movie, but it it doesn't quite have the, the oomph that it should. I don't know. and. Uh, Really, Ada, you know, was kind of over the top. Maybe Lachlan Monroe needed to be a bit more over the top as a villain and scheming. But he just looks like a nervous guy running around. It doesn't quite have the gravitas that you'd want. Well, and so, okay, you, I don't know how you felt about the the final battle or the climax of the film. But yeah. I had some thoughts on it, okay? So once, okay, sure. <laughs> once Raven is outed. Okay, if you will, and his entire plan is uh, is you know brought to the public. Um, both Raven and Granger go through the portal of time. Again, we have no idea how that how this this portal exists and why you know it how certain people are even in this time period or even able to open up a portal that goes through dimensions. But okay, whatever. But they both go through the portal of time and they have their final battle in the present, and they duke it out in Dolph's character's house. Now, here's... Okay, this is... Okay, I have a few issues with the film, as we've talked about, but I think this is one of my biggest issues with the film, and I don't know how you felt about this or not, but I feel like the final battle between Dolph and the king should have taken place on a mountaintop, okay, in the past, in medieval times, with swords, okay? They had had this, you know... they had the availability of that forest where they were filming. So I think they should have found some kind of mountainous area. I mean, there are many scenes where they're on tops of mountains, where they're climbing mountains and whatnot. So I don't understand why a film that takes place in medieval times that should ostensibly have our two leads battling with swords in the past, they decide to bring them in the present and have them fighting in a small little house. (laughs) It's like, what is this? And they're not even they're Oh my God. They're not even fighting with swords. They're fighting with hands. Like that's the other issue too. It's almost kind of like, do they know that this is a joke? Like, are they playing a joke on us here? If they're going to have Dolph using a pot and pan to, you know, (laughs) it's, it's quite strange. I think, yeah, you mentioned them fighting on a mountain or something that would have been good or even, yeah, I don't know. Like even them fighting with swords, you bring it to the suburban kind of townhouse that he lives in, or urban, I guess I should say, because he's in the city presumably, and um, it just feels almost like Home Alone, or maybe uh, <laughs> something from the Harrison Ford thing, uh, the Tom Clancy uh, Patriot games, where like the guys are invading the house. Like all of a sudden, it 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 loses the fantasy element definitely, in that he he uh, drowns uh, Raven in this like ni- nice hot bath that he had been setting for himself at the beginning is it's a bit gruesome when we see, you know, Raven underwater. I always think those scenes in movies are uh, kind of get to me a bit because I was almost drowned as a kid, but um, you, you see these things and it just is not the payoff that you want. You want something epic 
even if like, I don't know, maybe somehow what if they would have got had guns in, in the fantasy setting and started shooting guns in the woods, like that could have been go, something, yeah. something else, but you're right. It does. It's, it, I, this has to be like a budgetary thing. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It just feels like it's been a little bit too, too clever and too strange for the, the sake of being strange. It, it doesn't quite work. It's not adventure. It's, it's the opposite of adventurous. You, you, you want to end on a high note and this, this doesn't it's um, because especially when you see them in, in the modern day setting, they don't have magic or things to save them. Yeah. Elf Lundgren could easily take Lachlan Monroe. Well, I mean, in it, I mean, as we talked about earlier, I mean, I get that the film is ridiculous. I mean, obviously, yes, sure. But it looks absolutely absurd seeing Lachlan Monroe in his wig and costume, duking <laughs> out with Dolph yeah. in a kitchen, then in a bathroom you know, using pots and pans. And like you said already, I mean, so how does Dolph choose to dispatch of, uh, of this evil King? Well, he drowns him in a bathtub. Okay. Now on one hand, okay, look, okay. If, if an attacker came into your house, okay, obviously you're going to use whatever resources you have to defend sure. yourself, to dispatch of him. I get that. But on the other hand, I guess in the end, what I come back to is okay. In a film where, Dolph is playing a modern day karate guy who goes back in time to medieval times to take on an evil king. I want to see that. I want to see him throw a roundhouse to the <laughs> to the king's yes. head and use a sword to impale him. I don't think in the end, especially considering what they're working with, I don't think what I'm expecting is too much to to ask for here. You know? No, throw him out a window. Do something. Yeah. Jeez. Right. It's uh. It's a bit mystifying, and then I'm thinking, at the end of the movie, if I'm remembering correctly, he goes he goes back to to look at this the picture of his comrades, and it's like he still has a dead dude in his bathtub. Thank you. Like, how, I wonder how's he going to take well. care of that? How's he going to take exactly? How's he going to? Oh God, Matt, that was me. My next point. So the <laughs> final scene, the final scene is just rushed and weird because okay, Dolph drowns this guy in his bathtub. He casually walks away from the dead body that is just lying there. Like you said, how he's going to dispose of this body, let alone explain it. I have no mm-hmm. idea, especially considering like, how is he going to ex- explain this? Oh, this guy from a, from a LARP fair came into my, uh, came into my house and tried killing me. Sure. Like, and so what he does is he slinks down back at his desk, pours himself another drink, looks to the picture of his war buddies. And he says, well, guys, we did it. And I'm thinking to myself, What? Like, did what exactly? And how would his war buddies be pleased with this? Like, how did he... What, what is it he say? Something like, oh, we won this one. Like, what, what did he yeah. win exactly here? It, it makes no sense. It's not a good note to end things on. I mean, you could make fun of that first in the name of the king for having <laughs> just that ridiculous sequence where it's the two wizards making the swords float and just the floating swords fight each other. But <laughs> at, at least that's that's something or like the books are holding Jason Statham in place as they're spinning around. Like that's, that's some kind of a spectacle. You want it to some buildup at the end, even for Dolph Lundgren's sake, a uh, He-Man fighting Skeletor that has some, that, that feels like a, a sword fight or with the magic. I haven't seen that movie in a while, but it, it had some stakes going on, but here it, it just ends on a big pile of nothing. And although I, I think, you know, the drowning, it's a savage way to die. And then that's, somewhat interesting in a bathtub do it maybe if you're going to drown him you know drown him in the medieval times after you kill him like in in the poisoned water or something make him eat his own medicine 
kick them off so, the mountain, have them fall in the river or something, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Ugh, just not not a great way to end it. But I think you know, in the name of the King Two Worlds, Dolph is is doing something different. I think with on the more positive note, you know, the comedy is is something a bit interesting for him to be doing at this stage in his career. Uh, what other film are you going to watch that has Dolph Lundgren doing karate that has him has sex scenes with the, with the clothes on that has him going to a different uh, fantasy land that, that has him drowning someone in a bathtub all in one movie. You're not going to find that and anywhere teaming else. Up with dragon. And teaming, teaming up, up with the dragon. dragon, of course. Yeah. yeah. Dolph and a dragon. You, uh, you have the matchup everyone wanted. So, I mean, in the name of the King Two Worlds. It's it's a unique sort of movie, and I think you need to to go into it with it's it's not uh, maybe what you're expecting from the cover box or the trailer, but it's something I think that's that's worth seeing and there's fun to be had as long as you don't go expecting it to be like the next Lord of the Rings or Hobbit or something. Well, you and I were talking about it yesterday. Um, they mm-hmm. did do another in the name of the King movie, which is yep, hard to they believe. Did. So again, uh, Uva Bowl's investors must have found investment here where they could get their money back, but they decided to do a third one of these movies. It was called In the Name of the King 3, The Last Mission. Um, this one saw Dominic Purcell in the lead. So um, instead of instead of Dolph Lundgren, they went with Dominic Purcell. And what's interesting is they did the same thing once again, where they did A Man Out of Time goes back in time to medieval times. But I remember, because I actually, I did, when I first heard about it, and then when I watched it, I remember thinking, okay, if Dolph was going to do an in the, name, in the Name of the King sequel with Uva Bull, this is the one he should have done. Because what they do right. is Dominic Purcell's character, if I remember correctly, he's like a hitman. He's like a yep. contract killer, right? And I remember thinking to myself, well, that's what they should have had. To, I would have much rather seen Dolph play a modern-day contract killer who gets whisked away to medieval times than a karate instructor, you know what I mean, for kids. Yeah, not only that, and the third one, not to get too off topic here, or a little bit over time, uh, the um, you have the the guy that's making him do his his last mission is the same actor that plays the bad guy in the uh, medieval setting, which is sort of interesting. You you have kind of a, a romance in the story. It just seems like a, a sort of loose remake of the second one, but the the pieces tend to fit together a bit better. Well, okay, so here we are at the end, okay, the moment has come, Matt. Uh, you know, I like to do two recommends. So one recommend okay. as, a Dolph, as a Dolph Lundgren movie, okay, as a Dolph Lundgren vehicle, and then another recommend as a film in general. So in your opinion, okay, especially from someone who, let's face it, wrote the book on Uva Bowl's films, <laughs> yeah. does In the Name of the King 2, Two Worlds, get a recommend from you on either of these fronts? As, as a Dolph Lundgren fan... I would say yes, because it's just so strange. You're not going to see this combination of elements anywhere else, as we've discussed. Um, the second one, I would say probably not. I mean, if you don't like Dolph Lundgren, I, I don't know if there's enough to take you through this movie. Uh, when I wrote my book, uh, Uwe Boll, the films of Uwe Boll, Volume 1, the video game movies, um, this was probably one of my least favorites in there. But on watching it again, it wasn't as bad as I remembered. It just felt like it was missing a little something. And I think Dolph is enough to take you through it if you're a Dolph fan, but otherwise I would not recommend it. Well, you know, for me, thank you very much, actually. Yeah, because I'm mm-hmm. I'm kind of I'm right there with you in, in a lot of respects. I mean, this one I felt this is a wild one to not only watch but to review. I, I will say this. 
if the idea of Dolph Lundgren welding a sword and running through a forest and coming face-to-face with a CGI dragon sounds appealing to you, then I'd say go for it. I mean, I've never personally been into the Lord of the Rings movies, so if it wasn't for Dolph Lundgren, I would not have even picked this film out. And I've seen most of Uwe Boll's films, but you know, the, these kind of fantasy adventures just have never really been my thing. But I will say, you know, knowing that this film was clearly made on a budget, its limitations are glaring at times. And there are moments where it's very clear that Dolph is, you know, he's having fun with what he's been given, but I also think it's tongue in cheek. And he also, he's also playing many of these scenes knowing that, uh, you know, he's fully aware of the silliness of the material. Uh, For the most part, I think Dolph is clearly going through the motions. I mean, he, there's many scenes where I think he just seems bored and he really just wants that, that paycheck to clear so that he yep. can uh, pay, pay for his divorce attorneys. So <laughs> so for Dolph, I imagine that the movie was a success in that sense because it uh, it, it delivered what, what he wanted out of it. But to the fans, I will say it's just another tired conceit that we've seen in other films before. Even Uva Boll, who, who I respect and, uh, like I said earlier, who I appreciate what he does, I will say even Uva Boll seems a little tired here with this particular outing. Other than some fun exterior shots of Golden Ears Park, there's really nothing much here else of note to write home about. In the end, it's <laughs> in, in the end, I feel it's essentially just a bunch of uh, actors playing a uh, LARP or um, <laughs> yeah. medieval times, yeah. and then uh, and then just filming that entire convention. So definitely, um, no, I think I think that's well put, and. Yeah, I, I'm curious if Dolph will ever do another sort of fantasy set movie where he's actually fighting with swords again. Uh, they've been trying to do He-Man as a new movie for a long time, and it's never got off the ground. But maybe they'll put him in some kind of a cameo or something. He said, I mean, I, I think since The Expendables, and I was going to be, uh, I, I've talked about this on the show before, but um, since The Expendables and he got divorced and he also moved back to Los Angeles, what that did is that unlocked a lot of doors for him. And he mm-hmm. has been busy. I mean, he has been really, really busy um, with a lot of more. It's interesting because if you look at his output since 2010, he's actually done more films since 2010 than he did from like 1985 to 2010. I mean, it's really wild. And granted, a lot of these are supporting roles and cameos, but I think in the end, I think anymore, kind of like what we said earlier, he's a working actor. You know what I mean? Looking to, uh, you know, he has bills to pay like we all do. And I think as long as the check clears and it's a, uh, it's a role that is new and interesting to him, he'll, uh, he'll jump on board. And I think with regard to the uh, masters of the universe reboot, he said, like, you know, he, he, think that he thinks it'd be kind of cool to come back and play, like, the king or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Do that, I, think, uh, I think that would be awesome. Yeah, all I know that's going on with He-Man right now is they're doing a cartoon of it for Netflix that right. um, Kevin Smith, of all people, is in charge of, which doesn't, uh, on the surface, doesn't make a lot of sense. But No, me neither. Uh, yeah, but, I li- but otherwise... I liked, I liked Kevin Smith when I was about 16, but you know what happened is I grew up. And his 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 dick and fart humor really didn't uh, <laughs> really didn't uh, grow with me as I became older. So right. I will say this: I've got to see him. Uh, I saw him speak live one time after a screening, and if you can get into one of those to see him live, that's sort of fun because he does really well with an audience. Okay. But, yeah. I think I think any more with Kevin Smith, and, and sorry to go off on this tangent, but I think any more sure, with sure. Kevin Smith. I think he is amazing in terms of podcasting and uh, yeah. 
yep. and, you know, uh, live speaking, if you will. But any more in terms of his uh, his his directing output, if you will, I haven't seen anything that uh, is really worthy of uh, writing home about. But you know, maybe he still has some uh, some juice left in the can to uh, do something worthwhile. But I haven't seen much, in my opinion. All right, and speaking of Uwe Boll, he's apparently filming stuff in Germany right now. So I wonder what that'll end up being. Yeah, he has a documentary I know that he produced on uh, mm-hmm. the, the, on the homeless crisis in Vancouver. So. Yeah, I think that should be cool. Well, before I let you go, anything else that you want to plug? I mean, we mentioned Sequel Cast. We can find that on uh, iTunes and all the various podcasting apps. Your book, uh, where can we find that? I know you have a website as well. Yeah, as, uh, the website might be the easiest place. It's matwbt.com. Um, on Twitter, I'm also there at matwbt.com. The Twitter's kind of all over the place, kind of political sometimes, but uh, but there's fun to be had, I think. Also, a lot of cat photos, if you like that sort of thing. I have two cats and two dogs who are in Portland, Oregon, so they get um, exploited on my Twitter. Okay. So that's something. Cute animals, I guess, always work more often than not. I like to take photos of my cat, really obvious in the picture, and then say, spot the kitty. And it's not much of a challenge at all, but people seem to enjoy that. Otherwise, yeah, just go to SequelCast2.com is, is the main part for the podcast. It's on the Greenlit Podcast Network. We should have some fun uh, stuff coming up. I'm trying to think when this comes out. Uh, we'll be looking like at wrapping up talking about the Psycho movies, and then soon we'll talk about the three uh, Hobbit movies, which a lot of people have um, – negative feelings about so that'll be interesting to discuss and so and the and you're still at work on uh the the Uvable volumes two and three books right so we can yeah help. yeah i'll mention something quick about that yeah so um volume two will be the early drama films volume three will be the later drama films i think it's just split by the number of movies volume three will have all the rampage movies in there um what's interesting with the older stuff subtitles were never created for those Specifically, uh, his first film that he co-directed, German Fried Movie, and he did, uh, I think the first film he directed all by himself was Amoklauf, uh, which is only available in Germany, and it might even be banned in some countries. Um, and so to, to translate it, I had to use like AI-driven online translation to do kind of sloppy English translations. So that's taken, um, it's part of why it's taken a long time to kind of write about those, but yeah, it'll be interesting talking about movies that aren't video game related, but still available and try and connect some of the thematic elements. So um, I'm hoping those will come out later in 2021, if not early in 2022. All right. Well, Matt, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, uh, coming on. It was a pleasure uh, talking sure. to you, especially about this uh, silly little movie. And uh, if you're game and if you're willing, um, I know that Dolph doesn't have any other uh, video game based movies, but uh, if you're interested, I'd love to have you back on. So uh, yeah, yeah. Anytime. Let me know. Um, that'd be fun. Thanks. All right. Cool. All right. Well, to everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews, and we'll see you all next time on I Must Break, this podcast. 